Officer down! I repeat, Officer down! Welcome back to 1033. This is your host, Nathan Kapler. A podcast created for a first responder by a first responder. If you are not a first responder, you still are welcome. This podcast is aimed directly at trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD is complex and often misunderstood. Our brave men and women who serve our communities often end up with behavioral and psychological issues as a result of experienced trauma from their careers. My goal is to share what I know, my personal experience with PTSD as a retired police officer, and continue to advocate for mental health while providing support to those still in their careers. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical help, and I strongly suggest if you are in fact suffering, you seek out professional medical advice. Please join me on this episode as I continue to expose the reality of PTSD challenges. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to 1033. Today, I am honored by Matt Johnston. He is here. He is involved with the mental health community, but he does also many other things outside of that. Matt is a firefighter with over 10 years of professional firefighter experience. He's been to over 3,500 calls, and he is also a registered clinical counselor. Matt, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. How are you? Thank you. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Nate. It's glad to uh, finally connect with you. Been looking forward to this for a while. Absolutely. Uh, you and I crossed paths a few years ago and uh, through a mutual friend who is also a fighter fighter. Uh, and it hasn't been until now where, and I've seen a lot of your social media accounts start to really blow up with some of the work that you're doing. Uh, so I applaud you for not only being someone who still is in the first responder world, giving back and serving the community, but you're also very involved with the mental health community as well in trying to ensure that this PTSD issue gets nudged forward a little bit further and we start to deal with it differently because our approach has not always been the best way. Now, before we dive into that, that global kind of conversation, uh, which I'm really looking forward to, I want to talk to you real quick about just kind of how this all came to be. You're a registered clinical counselor. Now you're a firefighter as well. Uh, you're doing so many different things. You also have your own company on the side, I believe, a business that started that's trying to bridge the gap and really close this mental health loop so that people can get the right services. How did you get here? It's <laughs> a great question. Well, I guess how I got here really starts in the late 90s when I ran track and field on a varsity level. And um, running was actually my full-time profession until I was in my mid-20s. I was on the Canadian national team and running at world championships. And um, part of my success in running, I realized, was being a full-time university student. And so... I stuck in university as long as my running would pay for it and ended up getting a master's in psychology from the University of British Columbia. And when I opened up my private practice, um, everything was great. I, I absolutely loved the profession of, um, you know, talk therapy. And actually, I was trained as an expressive play therapist, uh, working with children and adolescents that had experienced, you know, depression, anxiety as a result of you know, unfortunately, different various forms of abuse and neglect. Um, and 
when I jumped back into the running circle, a lot of my friends from university had become firefighters. And I had really missed the team aspect of being, you know, on the Canadian national team. And I decided I was going to go from being a mental health professional to a firefighter. And um, my distance running mind took over. And within four months, I completed every qualification I needed to become a firefighter. And um, within a year later, I was fortunate enough to uh, to be hired. So it was quite the journey. And in some ways, I'm, you know, in my fourth or fifth career right now. So um, kind of a unique way to to look at the world, I suppose. Um, I'm not the type of person that just kind of sits back and yeah. am content with doing the same thing my whole life. So I'm really happy with how my career has kind of ebbed and flowed and where I'm at today. Absolutely. You would have an opportunity to have these amazing tools now walking into this minefield as a first responder, making sure that not only are you able to stay well as well as possible, considering what you're going to be exposed to as a first responder, but you're also going to be able to look after the people that are around you, right? Your brothers, your sisters, and make sure everyone is staying well. Now, when you made that switch into becoming a firefighter, was there any pushback on the the history that you had as uh, a registered clinical counselor uh, with a master's in psychology on who you are? Were you seen as a threat? It, what was that transition like? Man, that is a, a really um, observant question you ask, Nate, because um, prior to getting hired where I'm working, I had gone through other processes um two actually and one in particular did not understand my background at all and of course in canada like many other places the term mental health professional is associated with you know not a registered clinical counselor but a shrink or a psychiatrist you know things that i'm clearly not um and you know there were some insecurities 12 years ago within um, the fire ranks about having a, you know, a so-called shrink uh, ride along in the fire truck. And then from the chief and human resources side of things, they had a hard time understanding how I'd be willing to, well, first of all, why I'd be wanting to switch careers. And two, um, with my education and background, why I would be content, you know, sitting on the back of a fire truck as a junior member. Um, why would you want to go from working and operating your own clinic to scrubbing toilets? And um, as one chief told me, having two eyes, two ears, and one mouth, which is, you know, one of the worst things a, a chief could could tell someone that you're you're to be seen and not heard. Um, those messages early on really surprised me. Um, and made it very simple for me to understand the stigma around expressing yourself in public safety. And if you're taught those messages early on, why would you ever reach out for help in that, um, you know, in my opinion, false sense of brother and sisterhood that the chief, you know, would, would uh, try and portray. So I was really happy that I didn't get the job at that particular fire department, but. Um, starting from scratch in public safety at 34, 
I loved it. It was it was fun. It was a it was a game to play. Everyone knows uh, that there's a game to play in public safety to kind of earn your stripes, so to speak. And in you know two or three or five years, those roles are put on you know by by more junior members. So it's temporary. Um, so it it was it was a fascinating change. The the public safety culture has changed a lot since uh, 2011 when I had that negative experience. And it's changed for the better. Um, so um, it's it's something that uh, I'm happy to be part of a new and exciting change. And again, amazing. I, I kind of wondered how the the process of you getting into the mental health profession and then later on the firefighter would go for uh, some of the old guard that's there, right? Mm-hmm. That maybe sees you as the enemy or the threat. And and it's not like that's even necessarily a bad thing, but it just speaks to a complete lack of uh, awareness around this issue of mental health. And for a fire chief to to have this opinion of someone that you have two eyes, two ears, and one mouth, uh, I'm guaranteed that I'm for one that's a completely insensitive comment, uh, and it doesn't foster any kind of you know or promote any kind of well being within the workplace. Mm-hmm but I also kind of understand where he's coming from and I'm not going to blame him for the comment, but I'm going to, I'm going to venture out to say that that man most likely didn't have the awareness or the education behind him to really truly understand what some of those words were really going to do on the receiving end of, of giving them to yourself. Right. And that's the unfortunate part with the old guard leadership is they just aren't unaware and I have nothing but love and respect for them. You can't possibly fault someone for being that way when they haven't been shown that things should be done a different way. And I'm actually very glad to hear that now in 2022, it sounds like leadership's changing. They're becoming a little bit more empathetic and, uh, you know, appreciative to members and first responders concerns and hearing them out and not trying to shut them down, but letting them work through some of the problems, right. And just being more of a support system. So I think that's really important. And I'm glad to hear that you're seeing that now for you and where you work, you had mentioned that your leadership is starting to grow in the right direction. And that's what this is all about. We're not here to park, pick apart the problems of, the past we're here to show you know this is where we need to get we need to continue to show the leadership that you know you need to support your people and you need to make sure they feel safe uh, because they're going to be seeing a lot of hard things at work and if they can't come to you with some of those issues I mean they're like you said the layers of the onion the trauma that's within can get magnified. So you have someone who goes out and they experience trauma, they come back and they look for support and they maybe get it or don't. If they don't, you know, there's these certain layers of the onion, the moral injuries that can happen, the sanctuary trauma that can happen, all of these different components that can make the problem much, much worse. Now for you, I'd like to now take a quick opportunity to kind of get you and I on the same page. And one of the important things you mentioned to me just before we hit record was we need to really look at trauma first and define it. So I want to give you that opportunity. Sure, absolutely. Um, taking a step back in terms of understanding the term trauma, we spoke a lot about organizational issues. And what we're finding in public safety 
and it's a popular theme throughout Canadian society, is the term intergenerational trauma. This idea that ways of doing things are passed down from one generation to another. And what we're starting to see in public safety is a transformation. It's happening slowly, but we know if we don't transform it, we transmit it, just like that fire chief was transmitting his trauma and belief system onto me that was very dated. My definition of trauma is very similar to what you would see when you Wikipedia. It's a disease-disordered pathological way of explaining what I would say are usually natural reactions to abnormal events. And so therein lies the stigma in and of itself. So when people think that talking about trauma is somehow going to make it easier for public safety to reach out, in my opinion, it actually paradoxically reinforces the shame and stigma. Because when you read a definition of trauma, it usually goes like this, a damage to one's mind, exceeding one's ability to cope, um, particularly distressing. In other words, it gives trauma way too much power. And trauma lies in the eye of the beholder. So there's nothing inherently traumatic about something that happens in nature. It's our interpretation of it that might lead to a distressing appraisal of it that then impacts our mind and our body and our spirit. And so that would be traditionally what people would think of when they think of trauma. Now, trauma can happen directly to oneself, which is primary. If you shatter your leg and it's a compound fracture, that'd be a primary trauma. The majority of trauma that first responders experience on a daily basis would be vicarious or secondary trauma, which is witnessing the unfixable suffering of others. And the third aspect that very few people talk about and very few people know about, except on a gut level, is organizational trauma, which is coming full circle to my beginning to talk about this concept, which is the values belief systems of an organization that is transmitted and pushed onto their members and guised under the term traditions. And some traditions are healthy. They lead to incredible uh, team bonding experiences, uh, could be the best parts of the job, but some traditions are damaging. Um, and so we're in a transition within public safety in Canada where um, you know, traumatic encounters could be buffered with, with new and healthy traditions and old guard stuff that might have been working, or it could be magnified by significant challenges within an organization that are doing things because that's how it's always been done. And that's what public safety in Canada is all about, is doing things uh, how things have been done. Um, according to operational guidelines, traditions, uh, you know, the mandate of the organization itself. Um, it serves a purpose, uh, but in general, um, it's something that public safety organizations would be wise on reevaluating and saying, how well is this working for employees' mental health and well-being? And that's the emotional intelligence side of the job that um, tends to lack quite a bit in public safety organizations because we've been trained in black and white decision-making. 
which by the way is considered a cognitive distortion in cognitive behavioral therapy um looking at things in terms of shades of gray is enticing but it's not functional in public safety there's certain operational guidelines protocols on how to do things questioning your captain or your superior on how to do things is not going to serve you well and this is really my mission is to train civilian healthcare providers to understand that some of the stuff that they were trained in in psychology doesn't really transfer over well into public safety whether it's identifying your practice as trauma based again you're going to reinforce a lot of apprehensive feelings about reaching out for support and uh and secondly some of the counseling modalities that focus on looking at the world in shades of gray is not how public safety is trained or members look at the world because it is a very um you know enticing way to impact your life when you learn how to look at the world through the lens of a firefighter your mind is designed to look at the world in a in a similar light as well off duty whether you're a firefighter police officer corrections so on and so forth you just unpacked a lot and i'm just trying to sort out my thoughts here before i ask you hopefully one of two questions if i can remember both questions in the same breath here but i wanted to get kind of your opinion on or at least your global perspective on how how does trauma say impact say a firefighter and what's the difference between that and say maybe a paramedic or you know a police officer or a corrections officer because now we're getting into a different landscape where because we understand trauma through your definition so much better just the way you've defined it but now how do you apply that definition to all of the different groups out there that most likely are going to experience trauma and what what are some of the challenges that might be present for one component of uh say firefighter versus police officer versus corrections versus that whole gamut that also is a very complex issue and that's the first question i wanted to ask you so i'll give that one back to you sure and it gets even more complex than that because even within each profession as you know there's a huge difference between being an RCMP officer in Burnaby versus being an RCMP officer in a small rural isolated community up north and so even within the profession there are different um risk factors and protective factors when you're serving in a small community the degree of separation to the patient is often at most too and the frequency of having to go through that intersection in a small community is daily and unavo- unavoidable whereas if you're in a large urban center the chances that you know your patient uh is next to to zero and there's many different ways you can get to work you don't travel through that intersection so this is the complexity is um trauma is assumed to be experienced by there's this, an assumption that there's like a one to one correlation between uh distressing events and traumatic reactions but it's much more than that when you talk to a first responder about the lived experience of what they would consider traumatic in their life in general it's not the calls that they've gone to it's the other factors it's how they were treated within the organization 
if they had a disciplinary situation. Um, in your case, you know, talking about the impact a supervisor had on us, those are the things that keep us up at night. When you hit a parked car in a fire truck, just glancing the bumper or taking out a side mirror in a very narrow street, the mistake that you make knowing that potentially hundreds of your colleagues are talking about you around a coffee table. These are more significant in general than the calls you go to. Now, another example is the impact of suicide of a colleague, which I've gone through, um, you know, between two directly and five in general that I've been connected to through firefighting. Uh, those are things that you cannot prepare for. Those are things we get, have no training for. And so these nuances of the job are what keep people up at night. Are the calls significant? Absolutely. But when you look at the impact of sleep debt with organizational stressors, that is really what's leading to high levels of psychological injury combined with the cumulative impact of call after call and potentially having you know the criteria one or more of the terrible 10 um you know death of a colleague death of a child kind of calls that you go to of course those fill your bucket pretty quick so that is the lived experience side that I don't think um, a lot of light has been shed on in public safety, um, that the scrutiny or the making of mistakes on the job has on one's mental health. The choice to not be vaccinated if you're a member of public safety. Um, the organization stress that people who are non-vaccinated went through on the front lines made national headlines. And the damage that does when you realize that the so-called brother and sisterhood that you thought you had is now perceived as false. So now we're getting into more of the moral injury side of the job, which is separate from post-traumatic stress, but is often diagnosed as PTSD. And again, this is where the mental health field really lacks in terms of understanding the lived experience of an injury, because as first responders, there's this confirmation bias that, oh, if you're struggling with traumatic incidents or, or stress reactions, then we got to put you into this diagnostic criteria called PTSD. And that is such a misleading, dated, disordered pathological approach that I think has caused more harm than good for the vast majority of people that have struggled. Having said that, I'm not minimizing anyone's particular struggle, but to feel like you're living a disorder to, because you've had what I would say is a normal reaction to a series of abnormal events um, really is doing a disservice to our most vulnerable members. And I don't understand how human healing works when someone has their brokenness reinforced through having a label that's called a disorder. And so 
like one of my colleagues said, we've outsourced trauma in the society to a certain select group of individuals, first responders. We, as first responders, were pre-screened to be selected and recognized as some of the most resilient individuals in society. And yet we have nearly half of us struggling. That doesn't make sense. When you go through a nine-month hiring process or you go to RCMP depot and you're pre-screened or you go to Quebec as a CBSA officer and you're sacrificing friends, family um, for months to get through this, we are all hired highly resilient and something happens along the way. And there's a number of factors that happen. Yes, exposure to trauma, um, but what we don't talk enough about is the impact sleep that has on our on our mental health and also the role of organizational stressors. And yes, the chief ranks, the exempt staff are the easy targets to say um, they are the perpetrators, but there's also people, colleagues on the front line that can either buffer or greatly magnify the risk factors on, on the job. So we're in this together, you know, this is the cult, the solution to this is collective resiliency, recognizing that we may not have control over the larger organizational culture, but we have control over our minds, thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and hopefully the people we work closely with understand that we can master our mental health too. And so two people, two members, or four firefighters at a fire hall struggling together, now that struggle is divided by four. You know, the shared understanding that this is a common issue among the group of us allows us to feel connected and allows us to feel less isolated and less marginalized individually. And when we talk about certain risk factors, one of the protective factors about firefighting is the proximity to your coworkers, um, that collective resiliency that can happen. And I find tremendous um, potential in harnessing that energy to creating a new chapter in public safety. I'm going to go back to some of the talking points you initially brought up within this train of thought. And my, my podcast has been heavily focused on trauma, PTSD, uh, since the very beginning. And I'm actually really glad that uh, we're now kind of branching out and growing into this next new space of, you know, what does guilt and shame look like? for the first responder that has, like you said, gone down the the narrow uh, alleyway and accidentally bumped a car? Uh, how am I going to be perceived by my peers? You know, the brothers that I absolutely trust with my lives, the sisters that I trust with my lives, you know, how am I going to, to be perceived? And you start to kind of enter into this potentially uh, into this death spiral, especially if the organization kind of hangs you out to dry for very minimal things. And we have to admit that with this career of, uh, of being a first responder, I've made many mistakes and I know you have too, and they're going mm -hmm. to happen. So it's how we respond to each other's 
problems too at the same time that occur, the mistakes that happen. We're human. We make mistakes. It's it's inevitable. And the one thing that really kind of I noticed early on with the Mounties that was really, really uh difficult for me was this perception that was pushed on all of us that you could never make a mistake. Mm. And that too was something that was really, really difficult in the beginning to I guess almost how in a pill form, swallow it, right? Like how do I uh, approach perfection as a police officer and never make a mistake? And you're held to such an incredibly high standard. And that standard for the most part actually is internal too as well, right? So you tend to beat yourself up now when you're making these mistakes. And it's something that, I mean, we're we're breaking away from trauma talk a little bit, which I think is really healthy because so many of us are going to be listening to this. And thank you, Matt, for bringing this up. But there is so much guilt and shame that's outside of the trauma, uh, the fear of judgment, uh, the possible loss of support of your peers. Uh, and you're going to enter in possibly into this this mental death spiral of beating yourself up over something that's actually quite insignificant. So mm-hmm. that in and of itself, I mean, and I, I wanted to dive into this a little bit more and really kind of showcase this this topic that you brought forward because it's so important so so important and and from my own perspective what i've seen as a mountie is when you're a you're a gd guy you're doing your thing out in the field and you're alone and you're you're kind of that lone wolf tackling the calls whatever the case is a lot of times there's a lot of struggle that happens in that environment you're kind of removed from a team i've had this amazing sit down conversation with someone who uh, was on earth for years and i mean these these men are are different caliber human beings mm-hmm. But the the fundamental part of how they approach what they go through, because I mean, they're really getting thrown into trauma and some very, very massive uh, dynamic calls with a, a high risk for extreme violence. They're all okay. It's the guys that are on GD that are suffering the most. They don't have anybody to turn to. And I was talking to him and I said, why, why is it that the ERT person, the one that goes through the most trauma seems to be okay. And he said, it's because of the brotherhood and the sisterhood that's there. It's the people behind them that when they start to see someone start to suffer, they take that suffering and they say, Hey, share it with us so we can walk through this with you. And when you have that support, I mean, mental health challenges become so much more simple. The other aspect of some of the things that you talked about too, and and I have to agree with you is the disservice of how we've, We've taken this approach to lumping so many people into a toolbox or, mm-hmm. or a, a tool chest of broken toys, PTSD. As soon as you get that diagnosis, it can be incredibly harmful. When I was first diagnosed, the first thing I did was go and read what is PTSD, what are all the symptoms? And I mean, you can definitely, and I know you can do this too as well, Matt, you can start to argue, you start to read about these symptoms. There's actual, uh, I would think, a very small window of opportunity where you can start to maybe create some of those symptoms too as you're reading them. You're starting to look for them now, right? Of course, yeah. Right? And you're starting to Yeah, you're starting to reflect on your worst calls and you know, oh, that dream I had last week, is that related to a call I've experienced? And now all of a sudden, 
you know, these so-called in their definition, intrusive thoughts and impact on sleep and, you know, uh, night terrors or whatever you want to call them. Now, all of a sudden you start to introspectively look and even healthy first responders that don't struggle start to go, well, how come it doesn't bother me? Should it bother me now that I've read this? And so we can talk our way into this for sure. Absolutely, Nate. Um, you know, society, whether you're a civilian or first responder, when you read the diagnostic criteria for PTSD, we could all look at that and think about our childhood experiences or significant life events um, from a trauma lens and go down that rabbit hole. And so what I'm saying to your audience in public safety and society in general is that post-traumatic stress is not a disorder. It is an acquired stress injury that is the result of an accumulation of challenging events that essentially have filled your bucket. And that bucket can be, um, you know, lessened in terms of the weight. Uh, it can be, uh, if there are rocks in your backpack, they can be taken out, they can be broken down, a boulder can become a pebble. And there's just not enough talk about the growth that happens from setback. In other words, post-traumatic growth rather than post-traumatic disorder. And so shifting our, first of all, normalizing that we all have symptoms consistent with what would be consult, be considered a disorder in the mental health world of the physician world. Um, is actually an acquired stress injury, we can begin to normalize this idea that we can have these symptoms and still function. We can have bad days related to our mental health, in particular for those people listening that come off their second night shift. How is your mental health after your second night shift? Well, think about your child when they don't get a good night's sleep. And then you multiply that by 7, 8, 10, 20 years of service and put exposure to trauma on top of it and financial stress and everything else in life. You begin to realize <laughs> that this is a normal reaction to a really challenging lifestyle that public safety brings with us. Even just the stress of having this prescribed shift pattern where it turns out that your first day back uh, next week falls on your child's birthday. Um, or you look at your next uh, shift schedule and realize that you go back on Christmas Day and you work right through Boxing Day. Oh, and then you go back on New Year's Day as well. Those are tremendously isolating experiences for members of public safety. And what's the number one risk factor for depression? A sense of turning inward and away from others. Well, our shift pattern alone can serve to separate us from our friends and family, especially civilian friends and family. So we have to recognize that, um, that there's no shame and stigma in, in the suffering. In fact, I think the shame is in um, not recognizing, thinking that this job is all rainbows and butterflies and it's not a big deal to miss your child's birthday. It's not a big deal to miss their graduation. That is, to me, more in line with 
an injury than acknowledging the impact this job truly has on us. Um, so I ironically see a lot of very intelligent people that struggle so-called the most on the job because either they are too critical thinkers, they don't look at things in black and white, they look at things in shades of gray, like why, why is our operational guideline like this? They question things like, well, why do we not have an EpiPen on our first responder kit? Um, and so they're more in line to have things along the lines of moral injuries, which when you go and see a physician, a moral injury is often looked upon within the realm of post-traumatic stress disorder. And so a lot of people that get treated for PTSD and go through the exposure therapy side go, I don't have a problem with visualizing a fully involved structure fire with patients trapped. I have a problem with how management has treated me uh, for the last five to seven years. That's the biggest rock in my backpack. But getting that treatment, it's driven by the mental health professional, not always, but often. And it's you're fit into their paradigm. Whereas the key to really good treatment is to be able to understand the nuances of someone's struggle and recognize that sometimes the majority of their stress injury is related to feeling marginalized or picked upon within the public safety organization that they're in. Feeling like they were the squeaky wheel right from day one and now they're 15 years on and that backpack of the squeaky wheel the disciplinary meetings, um, the lack of faith or trust that others might have in you might be, usually is, uh, the biggest rock in your backpack. And of course, the sleep debt, the the calls that you go to, the birthday parties missed, or all these other rocks that are in your backpack too. But that's really what I'm on a mission about, is talking about the lived experience of psychological injury for public safety. And you're right, it's different for the correctional officer versus firefighter, police officer, paramedic, um, and the list goes on and on and on. So many important parts uh, of our own story come from, and especially when you start to dive into the, what does our mental health journey look like in life? I think as a young man, when I first started this journey with the Mounties, my level of emotional intelligence for myself was uh, it was quite bleak. I didn't truly understand a lot about my own emotions, uh, what they felt like, what they looked like, why they were there, why I experienced sadness. And then even in some of the more complex things that I was thrown into, why these different ranges of emotions were all happening at the same time, also while being overwhelmed at a call, right, that may have involved something very significant. And I love how you talk about, you know, trauma is this thing that we go through our own emotions, the struggle within and how to break apart the emotions eventually and and put them in the right places and kind of, you know, our mental health is really, really important. But there's also this body connection too. it's not just mental health really is you know, a body mind connection experience. And I think going into the profession, when I started to hear a conversation around mental health, I thought solely about the mind, the brain. And I didn't truly understand that, you know, this could also 
be degraded or there could be an impact to the mind as a result of some of the complex emotions that you would be going through as a first responder because uh, that too has an impact on how the mind works and how you know the body's operating and the connection between the two and you know i'm not going to go too far down that rabbit hole because one i think you probably have a ton to say on that whole uh, component of the body and i think it's something that really needs to be thought about for the first responder is as you walk into this situation and i mean we've highlighted the issues of you know trauma and organizational issues the sanctuary trauma that can exist within the moral injuries that can exist within all of the small pebbles that could be around right with the missed opportunities for loved ones for dates connections with uh you know a prospective uh partner uh missed opportunity right compassion fatigue there's so many layers of this conversation we could Mm -hmm. go on to name you know so many different aspects of this for literally hours but you've really got to own your mental health journey and ask yourself where are you and have the proper perspective of your mental health as far as it's not the trauma that you go through and the PTSD that you may be uh, diagnosed with, yes, is a part of the mind, but it's also a whole body part of this experience. And you really have to, in order to heal uh, and to start to move away from, say, the diagnosis, which I agree with you, I think we need to change how we deal with that. Uh, I'm not too sure what the solution is on that because there's going to be some people that do need to be diagnosed and there are also probably a lot that shouldn't and we can nudge them along in the right way, right? And educate them on how to properly talk about the struggle that they're going through. Because I think for me and where I'm going with this, this whole train of thought is that for me, when I first went in to get mental health help, when I knew I wasn't feeling well anymore, I didn't know how to talk about my struggle. Of course not. And I can, how old were you when you were hired, Nate? 21. Exactly. So you were, you were very early on out of adolescence, trained to function over feeling. In my opinion, the start of your stress injury when it's work-related began in recruitment, where you were given similar messages, maybe never heard the words of the two eyes, two ears, one mouth, but essentially this idea to be seen and not heard. And then you were taught a very black and white style of thinking in terms of how to maintain your safety on the job as a frontline police officer, how to correctly apply the necessarily laws. And essentially what you're taught is to function over feeling. In other words, 280 million years of evolution is what your organization wanted you to override. Why? Because we have, as many people know, these fundamental stress responses. Traditionally, they're called the three Fs, fight, flight, freeze. Well, let me ask you this. As a firefighter or a police officer, what, is, what are our options? Can we freeze? Can we run away? Or do we have to fight? We have to fight. It's in my job title. In other words, we have to override two-thirds of a primitive stress response to engage at all costs. We are trained to engage. And that is the beginning, in my opinion, of an acquired stress injury, which has been often portrayed as post-traumatic stress disorder. But that's what I mean by it being a normal reaction to a very abnormal series of events within culture and society that we're exposed to. 
when we override 280 million years of evolution that has served to allow us to evolve to become where we are at today, there's going to be consequences. And that limbic system that we're constantly overriding, it is the horse. Our frontal cortex is the rider. And our limbic system can buck that that rider off at any point in time. And we feel like we're losing our mind. Why? Because the limbic system and the frontal cortex are not well connected in our brain. Our limbic system can only whisper very primitive responses to our frontal cortex. And what did our training do? It almost always focused on the frontal cortex through analytical, higher level thinking. And then what ends up happening traditionally is we go to a therapist and talk about it, which talking is in your frontal cortex. Hence why talk therapy, the outcomes tend to be quite low because we can verbalize the events. We can learn techniques on thinking, feeling, behaving, the negativity bias, all this kind of stuff. But we can't override or quell the limbic system through talking. We can temporarily through venting about it, but we often find ourselves going in circles. And I learned this well before firefighting when I was a mental health clinician and I was an EAP contractor who worked with firefighters. And they loved me because they would, I'd let them vent because I knew that they needed to talk. They wanted to feel in control. They felt broken when they walked in. So they hid that through controlling the sessions. And I would wait one, two, three, four sessions before we really delved into things. And every time they showed up, they, they chased their tail, just like they had the, the session before. And it felt great venting, but there was really no break of that traumatic, troubled thinking that kept people stuck. And so the art of mental health now, the challenge out there is for healthcare providers to design ways of working with public safety that breaks that, that like you'd mentioned earlier on, reinstills a mind-body connection that can quell the restless mind and the nervous system because that is the root cause of dysregulation. It's not about changing the way we think. It's about finding ways to quell the nervous system response so that we can get a solid nine hours of sleep. Because just like I'd mentioned, when your child doesn't sleep well the next day, they might be colicky or, or tantrumy. Uh, and we know that once they have a good nap or a good night's sleep, they're going to usually come back to them being themselves. And the majority of public safety that struggle with mental health injuries, ask them how many hours of sleep they get per night. They're in chronic sleep debt. And sleep is fundamental to our mental health. And that's why we're seeing so much recreational use of things like THC and different sleep aids for public safety because they're tired, but they're wired. And they don't know how to undo that limbic system response that essentially is that horse that's bucked off that rider. And it's a very, very scary place in the most severe of cases because you feel like there's this dark cloud and it follows you wherever you go. 
and you snap at your wife and kids all the time um, and you're not really sure why. Well, you're not sure why because the limbic system can't tell your frontal cortex what's going on. We feel it in a gut level. We feel it in terms of the restlessness. And unfortunately, that negative feedback, like you, when we talked about the criteria for PTSD, the calls become magnified, um, the memories and the dreams become more vivid. And pretty soon, um, what started off as manageable and functional becomes debilitating to the point where we might miss shifts and feel like we're absolutely going crazy. Um, and so that's where, unfortunately, our mental health industry tends to, to engage is when we're at that stage. And that makes treatment much more complex. Uh, we see it in how much an in psychological injury claim is costing our worker compensation boards. We're talking like close to $200,000 on average per claim to treat a member of public safety. Why? Because by the time we finally reach out, we're in absolute crisis. Our life has fallen apart. And then 15 years ago, they'd come and see me and want to be fixed in 50 minutes, right? And so the, the misunderstandings between public safety and mental health and work compensation boards, um, national institutes, is, is what, in my opinion, has fueled this crisis. And we need to really normalize the acquisition of a stress injury. We need to recognize that all of us in public safety are going to struggle with a psychological stress injury. Will it impair our lives? It'll be on a spectrum. Absolutely, it impairs your life if you have a heart and you've missed your child's birthday, right? So we have to normalize the disconnect that we have to civilians by just by default of having years of service in public safety or military where you're deployed for months. Um, there are certain risk factors with every public safety profession that is applicable to all professions and unique to each profession. And that is where, you know, we can split hairs, but in reality, um, public safety, if we can just acknowledge that this is a very unique career that we will struggle and we normalize the struggle, I think we'll recognize more early access to mental health care to make those problems broken down into more manageable pieces so that our clinical outcomes are achieved in fewer sessions and we have multiple touch points throughout our career so that when we struggle, we actually have familiarity with who we're going to see in, in the counseling room or the physician office. So getting ahead of this and recognizing preventative care is the key to reducing the severity of a, of a psychological injury is to me, uh, the challenge that I put out to every individual and organization. The amount of people, and you nailed this, the amount of people that eventually go and get help, uh, are usually the people that are finally at that end stage where things have become so bad that they don't have a choice. It's it's like a rock mm -hmm. bottom Mandated. of sorts, right? And in, that's something too, like that was from my own experience where finally I was able to go out and get that help. But again, I was very much at that rock bottom. And unfortunately, 
we need to get better at the preventative uh, catching people before they get to that stage because of the crucialness of where you're at and the amount of time that it takes to now unwind that person from being at rock bottom or, or having those immense struggles in uh, PTSD or however you want to classify it. So I'm glad you touched on the importance of, of that. And I think, and this is something that ties back to my original train of thought here before you talked this, uh, this very last segment was you have to, as a first responder, really tap into where you're at and be willing to acknowledge that your pain and suffering is going to be there uh, and you need to go and get help before it becomes a big issue. So having that level of vulnerability and authenticity to say, hey, I'm starting to slide, let's catch this now before it becomes a bigger issue is a really difficult thing for all of us first responders to admit. But if you can have that ability to put whatever it is that's keeping you away from admitting that, the ego, the pride, whatever it is, the stigma of how you're going to be perceived, your life is going to be so much more better off. It's going to be better off with loved ones around you, uh, your work-life balance, your sleep. And sleep is one of the big things. Like when I really wasn't well, I was sleeping about 15 minutes a night for well over a year. And at that point, I was a walking zombie. And I had Every clinical symptom of PTSD happening, the cyclical thought, uh, the massive depression, the uh, anxiety, the hypervigilance, negative thinking patterns beyond belief. Like it just was a, I was a train wreck. I was more of an issue then uh, than I was actually in active addiction. When I was using THC, it actually brought everything down and suppressed Mm -hmm. that limbic system. And I remember the first time I actually uh, used THC and I thought, is this what it feels like to be normal? Mm-mm. This is incredible. And, and this is what I've been missing for years. I could sleep and I enjoyed life. And it was like this, this miracle cure where it was like, all of a sudden you're sucked into this world of just like relief, mm-hmm. which again ties into the issue of the slippery slope, right? When you're going through that pain and suffering but I'm not going to go down that road with you because I just wanted to, again, kind of reiterate kind of where you're going with all of this. Cause it's really important. And one of the other things I wanted to talk about too, real quick was one of the questions I wrote down here while we were talking was how do you even begin to educate uh, counselors on how to give therapy to first responders? And when you first started to talk about this, I was just thinking like logically, I was, I was like, how, how do you do this? Do you, do you educate them on what we go through uh, all of these different things, but you actually touched on this in a very kind of uh, unique way that I've never heard before in how, you know, the different parallels between the, lim- the between the limbic system and that prefrontal cortex and how, mm-hmm. and I don't know if this is where you were trying to go. I might be inferring here a bit, but to me, it sounds like for you as a first responder in your perspective, having someone come in and do the talk therapy, yes, it's great. We all need to learn how to talk, but eventually you have to start diving into the emotions of the, uh, the trauma that's brought on this intense sadness or 
anger or whatever it is, and maybe start to actually try to heal that emotion uh, through the limbic system. So I just want to be clear here and ask this question of you. Is that mm -hmm. kind of your approach on how you now are perceiving we need to train these counselors yeah. is not only to get them up to date with lived experience of, hey, this is what a first responder goes through, but you also need to push more for a healing of the limbic system to knock them out of that constant state of fight, flight, freeze. Yeah. And most therapists will understand and be trained in modalities that quell the limbic response through EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing, um, through somatic experiencing techniques, and through mindfulness-based uh, modalities as well. Clinicians have really got a lot of training in that industry, too much. And there will be therapists going, no, no, you can never get too much you know, trauma-informed. Yes, you can, because what's been lost is getting first responders to that stage of treatment. Most first responders will go to a talk therapist for one to two sessions and they won't come back. Why? Because psychologists and clinical counselors across Canada don't know how to engage first responders in enticing them to therapy for a number of reasons. Talk therapy, if we look at the history, one of the major founders was Carl Rogers, client-centered therapy. And his modality was essentially to meet the client where they're at and take their lead in terms of what they're speaking about. And that is a lost art within the modern counseling side for first responders. So what I'm suggesting is not more training in trauma-informed practices. I believe a lot of therapists have, have done that. And it served to disconnect in some ways talk therapists from first responders. Because in the early 2000s, and I was part of this movement, we were enticed into, you know, the advances in neuroscience around, um, you know, functional MRIs about um, the neurobiology of trauma. And so there was a whole monetization in the field towards treating complex trauma. And I believe that that training reinforced the science of it. But what was lost is a lost art of how to build rapport with stoic service audiences, such as paramilitary or on a macro level, men in general in Canada. For every female that dies by suicide in Canada, there's four men that die by suicide. The means we choose are more lethal than the means that women choose when they want to end their lives. This is serious. The mental health field, when we look at it on a macro level, has really fallen short on servicing men in general. And I can challenge that by just people going and doing a Google search of clinicians in their area. Look at their business names, look at the colors of the websites they use, um, how they describe things, they tend, in general, not all the time, but tend to be more gender typical uh, in line with, with women, females, than they are men. And that is what I've been upstream against for the last five years. And I can tell you, there are a ton of talented therapists 
that to no fault of their own, just didn't know any better. They thought they were, they were an inclusive company that would attract all sorts, but then they realized who wasn't showing up. And I can tell you who usually isn't showing up is the police, police officer, the firefighter, the paramedic, the so on and so forth. And so what I did is I created a program I've trained personally, I've trained over 500 healthcare providers in Western Canada. It's now a national program through Wounded Warriors Canada. And what we do is instead of directing members of public safety to individual clinician websites is we have a directory on warriorhealth.ca. And what that does is it's a free accessible directory no paywall, no data mining. You're not going to get ads for a plumber if your sink's been broken for a week. And you can access people that have taken our training on how to work with what we call trauma-exposed professionals. And this is a start of a, of a movement that has garnered international attention and has been replicated or attempted to be replicated in other countries. And we are going to and are changing the mental health landscape for public safety, one healthcare provider at a time. And what we know about Canada is that Canada has varying um, degrees of regulated mental health care. In BC here, anyone can call themselves a therapist. We don't know if they've done 10 weeks of training in career counseling, or if they have a PhD, because anyone can call themselves a therapist. So we need to get out and change the mental health landscape for public safety by tightening it up. And right now I'm not suggesting we're regulating anything. What we're doing is we're sharing information on a national database on healthcare providers who are part of a recognized professional body who have taken some training. So in other words, it's a network right now. But my dream over the years is that we'll continue to nurture this network through advanced training hands-on experience in public safety of understanding what it's like to be in the boots of a firefighter, um, what it's like for a police officer to work through the night, and eventually create an accredited national association to essentially provide more regulated mental health care for public safety so that when someone does reach out, there's a place to go. Because our conversation when we're encouraging public safety to reach out, I'm sure there's listeners right now going, that sounds great, but what is Matt talking about? Where do I reach out? Where do I go? I live in a small city in central Alberta. I don't have a network of healthcare providers. Or the more common one is I've tried our employee assistance program and the clinicians started crying the first time that I went to them or they had no idea of what it was like to be a police officer. And my challenge to public safety is mental health professionals usually have arts-based backgrounds. Their training is pretty much the exact opposite of the training we receive as public safety. And there's not a lot of university courses on how to work with members of public safety. So usually if you're in a situation where you have to educate someone, and that clinician has the curiosity and the humility to want to learn from you, that is the key to sticking with therapy. It's different if the, if, if the clinician's you know, rude to you, which I hope doesn't happen very often, 
But if it's someone that just is curious and wants to learn more about your profession, my advice is please stick with it because that individual in the other chair has their own level of expertise, which if you give them a chance, they'll be able to shine. But public safety tends to have this very sensitive bullshit meter when they go into those offices and we're looking for reasons to sometimes not even go back. Uh, you know, we can say to our, our wives or spouse that we tried it and it didn't work. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, reasons why we can cop out just like, you know, when we get injured and we have to go to physiotherapy and do those really lame, tiring exercises that you're like, does this even work? You know, and it's the same in talk therapy as well. So we have a challenge in Canada. We have a lack of regulation. We have a lot of silos within the mental health field. But I'm proud to say that Warrior Health um, launched in the last year and Wounded Warriors Canada is leading the way to making um, mental health more culturally competent um, for, for members of public safety. We've covered a lot of ground today, Matt, and you have been an amazing guest. Uh, I, for one have learned so much from you already. Uh, so I, I truly appreciate your time, uh, especially on this topic. I know this episode, again, is going to touch many listeners and it's going to impact people in the right way. They're going to hopefully come away from this with a bit more knowledge and a bit more of an uh, ability to look at their own life and hopefully ask themselves the hard questions of where are they in their own journey. And there is no shame with having a mental health issue whether it's big or small, where the shame comes in is we sometimes feel like that mental health issue, we're going to be judged by that, we're not going to be accepted by our peers. And you have to be able to challenge yourself in that shame and that guilt and recognize that this is the human experience, there is no shame. And most likely, you will go through something traumatic, something very serious in your career, at least once that's going to impact you, and you're going to need help with it. And one of the beautiful things you said earlier on was that you take this approach. And I love this when people take this approach because there are still a lot of people out there that say not everybody gets hurt not everybody goes through pain and suffering as a first responder and I come at it from a much different angle very similar to you where we have the acceptance around we need to accept because of the abnormal events that we're going to that there will be pain and suffering. It's just like you said, how big is it on that scale? It's there, whether you're willing to admit it or not. So if you can step back from letting the ego step forward and really focus on there's going to be an issue somewhere, let's just accept it. And let's go and talk about it when it starts to surface, however small it may be. And if you can do that before hitting the big iceberg down the road, you're going to be so much further ahead. Now, you yourself are doing so much in this community. So I want to highlight kind of where people can go to support you in what you're doing, but also be able to reach out and get the help that they need. Because you've already established the the immense positivity that you're gaining for the mental health community and making sure that there's now a database in place where people can turn to those people that are really isolated in the northern communities or the smaller towns spread out across Canada. 
There are so many people that I hear from, even through my Instagram account that say, hey, that's great. You're talking about all of this stuff. I I need to go and get help. I need to start talking about what I'm going through. But I can't go to anyone. I don't have Mm -hmm. a resource. I don't have a support system. So one thing I wanted to talk about was an amazing website that's out there. You're a part of it, Matt. WarriorHealth.ca. A very, very important place for all of us to to have on a card in our back pocket because most likely we will need to pull that out at some point if we can't gain the support. There is, you've actually removed the roadblock right there and created a space where you can go and get that help. So let's talk about that real quick. Sure. Warrior Health is under the umbrella of Wounded Warriors Canada. And where it all began is essentially um, training healthcare providers on the lived experience of and essentially putting the people who took the training onto uh, a database that looks very similar to like a VRBO style map. And essentially what Wounded Warriors Canada really recognized is that this can't be just a province. This has to be across Canada. And of course, because they're a national charity, that is their focus. And so for the last year and a half, we've been developing a national database on warriorhealth.ca. And essentially, when you go to that website, and you click on um, being a uniformed service personnel, you agree to the terms and conditions, and then essentially it opens up a map of Canada. And you can zoom in by your community, and find out who is in your neighborhood. Um, You can also um, go and recognize just certain types of mental health professionals that your extended health plan covers. And it'll act as a series of filters that allow you to really identify the group of mental health professionals that you are seeking assistance from. The nice thing too, is that it doesn't necessarily have to be a clinician in your backyard you mentioned small community that is a challenge it's always going to be a challenge in Canada we're just so sparsely populated given the size of our geography Um, many of the clinicians on this database offer online um, counseling as well and so it's really important to recognize that if someone isn't in your backyard yet this isn't this is a new initiative it's going to take a while to have thousands of healthcare providers on it Right now, there's hundreds. There's literally around 500 healthcare providers on it. And they're all members of a registered professional body within their province. Whether um, your extended health plan will recognize that individual that you're seeking help from as, um, you know, services that can be reimbursed is really not something that I, I really focus on. I'm really focused on helping members of public safety find the best fit for their needs. When you go to warriorhealth.ca, you got to recognize that looking for a healthcare provider is like looking for a new car. There's different makes and models. So test drive a few. Don't necessarily think that you're going to hit a home run with the first person you reach out to. Recognize that there might be things that you're wanting to talk about that are more marital issues. So you don't necessarily want to go to a trauma therapist if it's a marital counseling. You might be going 
for, you know, issues related to parenting. So public safety isn't necessarily this um, one size fits all type client. Recognize that there are different types of experts in the mental health field for different types of issues. There's also child and adolescent therapists so that if you have a child in your household and you know your wife's a, um, a registered nurse working shift work and you're a police officer shift work, that is a very unique family dynamic. And it's actually a very common public safety house where both uh, people are members of public safety. So of course that's going to have an impact on the lived experience of your child. So we recognize this. And so our training has been, um, you know, something that a lot of play therapists have been interested in taking as well. So my point is, is that there are a wide variety of mental health professionals on warriorhealth.ca. Um, you're going to have to put your homework in and do some investigating as to who on that database is a good fit for you. Um, and that's going to be as unique as your fingerprints sometimes. So if you don't get a good fit the first time, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, look into other people on the network that might be a better fit for you. Beautifully said, my friend. Having those those options to get that support uh, when you are finally at a place where you no longer feel supported is one of the biggest issues uh, I see, uh, especially with my own journey going through PTSD and navigating my own mental health and some of the challenges that came from uh, some of the things that I went through. And anytime that you can remove the roadblocks, uh, the very massive roadblocks that are in front of us, we just make that next step a little bit easier. So I really applaud you for being a part of that program. Now, one thing I love to do here too, and this is this has always been my theme in life, I love to obviously serve others and uh it hasn't been until I've gained my own sobriety and gotten to the place where I am now with everything that I've been through, where I truly recognize that serving others uh, without expectation has become a very big theme in my life because it's really important to show up for others. And you never know where that's going to lead that, uh, that connection with others. So one thing I wanted to touch on real quick is how do we do that for you? How do we, how do we help support Matt? in this journey. Uh, you also have your own website up and running the first responder health uh, business that you've formed for yourself and some of the initiatives you have. So let's take a quick moment to, to talk about that and how else we can support you as well. Yeah, well, first responder health, um, you know, delves into training healthcare providers on how to work with first responders. We also do wellness programs for fire departments in particular right now. And then we're very proud to have a number of partnerships here in Western Canada that allow us to provide psychoeducation training for in particular fire departments right now. So that's currently what we're working on. But if, if listeners want a place to say donate money to, um, donate their support to, Wounded Warriors Canada is the place to go. They're rec recognized national charity. Um, they they definitely punch out of their weight class. It's amazing what such a relatively small organization can do on a national scale. And um, you know, I'm just encouraging listeners, if they don't know about Wounded Warriors Canada, to check out their website. I know many of your listeners will be familiar with them. Um, but the amount of, you know, dollar for dollar, the amount, how far 
a dollar gets stretched in Wounded Warriors Canada reminds me of the food bank. You know, you can donate a can of food or you can donate $2 to the food bank. They can magnify that $2 more than that can of food that costs you $2. And so that's really what Wounded Warriors Canada is, is they're not into building a $20 million purpose-built facility. They're into taking donations and putting it right back into programs that serve public safety. And their programs have shown a lot of really good success. And, and that's why they've got such a great reputation across Canada. So that's where, in my opinion, people can help out is um, directing their, their energy towards uh, Wounded Warriors Canada. And anything that we can do to support you directly? Um, no, I think just by having me on your podcast, I, I feel supported. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we're at an awareness level. So I know that some of my perspective is not mainstream. So I think, you know, for me, just being able to share with your audience, and thank you for that, by the way, this opportunity to share my perspective with a different group of people that may not have heard of me. My objective is filled. My my good bucket gets filled um, by knowing that maybe a listener here can reframe the nature of their, their struggle and recognize that it's a contextual struggle. It's It's a struggle as a result of the environment they're placed in rather than something broken within them which when we struggle, we can often feel broken, we can feel shameful, we can feel weak, we can feel all of these uh, adjectives that public safety are not supposed to feel according to our training. And we know that's, that's not true. If it was true, the rates of suffering among public safety in Canada would be much, much lower than almost half of us. I truly hope that a lot of people tune in to today's episode and listen, Matt, I want to, I want to close this off and give you a quick moment to end off with any kind of closing remarks that you might have. I normally tend to try and, you know, let a person have something at the very end where they can maybe give some hope to some of the people that might be in this, in the struggle or the suffering uh, that comes from first responder work. I'll give that to you. But before I do that, and before we wrap this up, I wanted to say thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart for your time. Uh, you've taken time away from your loved ones, uh, from your hectic life, <laughs> as you wear many, many hats. So the time that you've spent and invested here uh, is for that end user who is listening on the other end. So we truly appreciate you and your time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I guess my final words or comments regarding, you know, maybe a listener out there that's struggling is that, um, you know, it's a confusing place to be, the nature of the struggle. I've been there myself. Um, it's not, you know, something we can sugarcoat, um, but recognize that your struggle, no matter what it is, um, someone else has a very similar reality that they're faced with not in this alone even though you might feel alone within your department or your organization and no matter how severe the struggle is there's always hope and if you can really challenge yourself to give 
outside healthcare providers in Canada a chance to help you and use their expertise and use their tools to get better. No matter what part of the struggle you're in, there is hope to get further into the green, further into the idea that we're thriving and not just surviving. So um, I hope that um, people get the, the help they, they do and that Warrior Health can serve as an if they feel kind of lost in the process of seeking out culturally competent uh, mental health care. So thank you for your time. Everybody, that's Matt. Uh, he is a human that uh, I have not met too many that walk the shoes that you that you fill. Uh, so thank you for everything that you're doing, not only from a, a firefighter, uh, first responder uh, perspective, but also the mental health community that you were lighting on fire and the change that you are creating. So uh, we are going to end it here today, but I can honestly say that my appetite to have further conversations with you on the podcast in upcoming seasons is definitely there. So I think we're probably going to hear from Matt again. So for now, everybody, much love. Uh, I send my best wishes to you. Uh, a truly riveting episode. Matt, once again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Season 2. If you are a first responder with an incredible story into post-traumatic stress, please reach out and connect with myself. Season 2 is based on your story. And if you want to step up to the plate and share your story with the world, I would be more than honoured to help you do that. Thank you for your continued support with this project, and thank you for tuning in today.